This week on Myths and Legends, it's a fairy tale from Italy, where we'll learn that sorcerer kings can have other hobbies, and that the apple might not fall far from the tree, but if the dating prospects don't, well, you might have a problem. The creature this week is an angry Jason Momoa, who wants to tempt you to make terrible life choices, and his little bookworm buddy, who wants to help you enjoy a glass of wine. This is Myths and Legends, episode 219, Unhand Me. This is a podcast where we tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you might think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories that might be new to you, but are definitely worth a listen. Today's story comes to us from the 17th century Neapolitan writer Giambattista Basile, the incredible off-the-wall storyteller who told the original very dark Sleeping Beauty story. There's not much backstory to today's tale. It's a fairy tale, so it doesn't link itself to history. And it's just set in a generic European medieval kingdom. We'll jump in with Penta, who just made her brother, the king, very embarrassed. Penta watched the king's face grow red. Her brother's face grow red. This, this was bad. It all started with an ending. Several of them. The untimely demise of his wife had quickly followed the deaths of their parents, making him both king and widower in less than a year. Penta, his sister, had found him weeping in his bedchamber. She was the only one that saw this side of him. He had to be strong. He was king in a chaotic time. So, she was his shoulder to cry on. That morning, he held her hand and wept, saying that things were so difficult right now. Her arm around him, she told him that she loved him and she would do anything to help him recover. She felt a hand on her thigh. Anything? Penta froze. What? She stood. What was he doing? His face turned red. Oh, okay. Now, he was the bad guy here. She literally just said she would do anything. That kind of made her a liar, and lying is wrong. Who's the bad one now, Penta? Penta shouted that she would do anything, but not incest. Ugh. The king rolled his eyes. Okay, she was being a little judgy here. It wasn't incest. They were going to get married. That's still incest, Penta informed him. To paraphrase Rick and Morty, that's just incest with extra steps. The king shook his head. Mm, pretty sure it wasn't. Plus, he was the king in an absolute monarchy, and he made the laws, so he was just saying it wasn't. Penta shouted that he could make whatever laws he wanted, but she wasn't marrying him. He was her brother, and she was going to pretend like this was the grief talking. So the next time they spoke, it better be about something else. She slammed the door as the king sat, jaw clenched, and his face a fiery red on his bed. A week later, when he sent a servant to a room to decide the menu for the wedding feast, the man shaking his head and agreeing that this was weird, he didn't want to be part of this either, but hey, here they were, Penta ignored the servant, and her heels pounded on the stone back to her brother's quarters. She entered the room and said that, once again, she wasn't marrying him, no matter what. She would rather die. He looked at her, square in the eyes, unblinking and unfazed, and said that she should choose her next words carefully, or she would have her wish. Penta looked at the king, her brother, 
flanked by his courtiers. She looked in his eyes. and She saw a man she no longer recognized. The pain, the grief, the fear. She didn't know what had done it. But he was changed now. She swallowed hard, nodded, and left. The next time they spoke, she, with her arm around him and stroking his chest, smiled up at him, saying that she didn't get it. What did he see in her? He told her that she was too modest. It was all of her. She was the most beautiful woman he knew, head to toe. She played with his beard a little. Really? There had to be more. Why her? Why not literally anyone else he wasn't related to? Like, seriously, anyone. He threw up his hands, palms out. All right, all right. Got me. It was her hands. Penta blinked. Her hands? She drew them up in front of her face, looking at them. She glanced over to her brother, now breathing heavily, nostrils flared, stunned with mouth agape. She was surprised. So, you're a hand guy, huh? Is is that a thing? You know what, please don't email me, I don't care to know. He said he was a penta hands guy. Those hands were the well bucket that drew his soul from the well of life. They were the vice that gripped his spirit while love filed it. They were the serving fork that pulled the entrails out of the pot of his chest. All three of those being word for word from the pentamerone. She, oh, yikes, he was such a poet. Well, wow, she was so glad to know this. Hey, would he excuse her for a moment? He said, of course. He leaned in for a kiss. She backed up. Oh, they were saving that for, for later. It'll make it that much better. He bit his lip as he watched her and her hands glide from the room. Penta's serving woman knocked on the door to the king's chambers. She had a gift from Penta for her husband-to-be. They were all still getting used to saying that. The king gladly accepted it. Only a few days now. Then they would be man and wife, and she would be waking them both up in the morning. The serving woman frowned. Nope, 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 do not want. The king thanked the woman, and she left him alone. He undid the bow in the box. So nice of his sister and wife-to-be to get him something. Inside the box was a lump of something covered with silk, with a note in her beautiful handwriting that told him he should enjoy what he most desired. He smiled. Oh, so thoughtful. He pulled the silk covering away and screamed. He leapt up, and the box, along with Penta's two severed hands, thudded to the ground. Penta was found in her room, and the king was horrified to see two bandaged, cauterized wrists where her hands had been. She had paid an enslaved woman the price of a small kingdom to do the deed, and then freed her. Penta didn't scream or cry out at all during the deed. The alternative was far worse. That look in his eyes that she had seen the day that he threatened her life was still there, but he was even more frenzied, more detached. He was shaking with rage, saying how dare she mutilate herself. Couldn't she see what this did to him? Which, I don't get that, but whatever. He ordered her to the dungeon. She didn't even stay there for the night. Sometime after midnight, she was roused from sleep on the mouse-ridden straw and dragged to a cliff overlooking the sea. 
There, in the torchlight, the king showed her her punishment. The pitch glistened in the light of the fire, and the king nodded to one of his men. They grabbed Penta by the neck and arms, and even though she fought, she couldn't overpower them all. The siblings' look of hatred matched one another's as the chest clicked closed. In the darkness, she could smell the fresh pitch being painted outside as it leached through the cracks. Then there was the thud of a kick, seconds of weightlessness, and the crash of the waves. Penta bobbed as the sea carried her away. could have been hours, probably not days, but Penta didn't know until she felt the rush of cool air and saw the blinding light of the noontime sky. The fishermen gasped when they saw her, and their leader told them to back up. He held her arms and helped her from the chest. She looked around as best she could, but she didn't know the area. She was at some big inn by a port. The door swung open, and Nusia, the wife of the lead fisherman, watched her husband helping this beautiful young woman in and told her to sit down. He would get her something to eat. Nusia asked who she was, and not looking away from Penta, the man said that she had been found in the ocean by his men. Someone had attacked her, cut off her hands, and sealed her in a chest. It was a wonder she was alive. Nusia watched her husband bring a plate of food to the young woman, and she saw them both laugh as he tried to hand her the fruit. Then... She watched her husband feed Penta with his own hands. Get up, Nusha barked at Penta in a whisper. Penta's eyes opened slowly. She was alone in the best room in the inn. It turned out that the man who had rescued her was a jack-of-all-trades sort. He was a fisherman by day, an innkeeper by night, and a merchant on the weekends. The inn in the port was a successful one, being one of the few non-rocky stops along the coast. Penta tried to ask what was going on, but the hand that covered her mouth and the knife tipped to her throat told her all she needed to know. Nusha said that she had worked hard to make a good match, and it wouldn't be taken away by some nobody that showed up in a chest. When they were outside of the inn and walking along the docks, Penta begged the woman to be let go. She would never come back, she promised. She just asked Nusha not to kill her. The woman laughed. She wouldn't kill her, and she would let her go. Penta said that there was no need for the knife then. Seriously, they had the same goals here, and she stopped at the cliff, overlooking the ocean, and what Nusha had prepared there. Oh, come on. Real original. Figuring her chances were better back in the chest than facing off against this woman with a knife to her neck Penta knelt down and climbed back into the chest. She took her last deep breath of the cool night air as the darkness enveloped her once again. We'll see Penta's second trip in the watery chest, but that will be right after this. awoke in a soft bed with a kind older woman looking over her stroking her hair she looked around 
where was she? She was in the kingdom of Terra Verde, far up the coast, and it was ruled by the kind older woman's husband. She had been found by the king's fishermen. She was barely breathing. The queen told Penta to rest. Whatever fairy tale brutality had happened in her past, to make it so she was trapped in a chest with her hands cut off, it was over now. She was safe. And she was. Penta didn't stay long in bed, and, though she was friends with the queen, she insisted on working to earn her place in the household. She insisted on being treated like every other servant. And it wasn't long before she learned to sew, thread a needle, starch a collar, and comb the queen's hair with her feet. And for this, she was held as dear as a daughter. Which is why the next part is super extra weird. You see, the queen was dying. Maybe. The story is kind of unclear what exactly was going on. But the queen started talking loudly about her imminent death. I don't know if she was sick or into extreme sports or like licking toilets or what, but she took her husband, the king of Terra Verde, aside and said, hey, when I go, you know that beautiful young woman I took on as a servant girl who combs my hair with her feet? The one we look on is kind of like the child we never had. Yeah, she's the one for you. Marry her. Immediately. I like to think that the king looked on that request with some disgust. Really? Penta? But, but nothing, the queen replied. When she met her untimely death, he was marrying this beautiful young woman. She was obviously a princess or noble or some type of highborn woman. This was the last request of the king's dying wife. It might as well be a commandment. Fine, the king grumbled. He'd marry this beautiful young woman. Ugh, this was such an unfair request. And definitely not a conversation he made up later. Then the queen died. Doesn't say how. Story just says the candle of her days was snuffed out, which is as poetic as it is vague and unhelpful. His queen gone. The king decided to honor her final request. Let's say he proposed to Penta, and she said yes. The pair was married. Shouldn't be long. Six months? I need to go visit our allies in Highcliffe. Travel takes forever in the early Middle Ages, the king said to Penta, and then bent down to kiss her abdomen. Five months along, huh? Penta smiled. When he returned, he would be able to meet his son. She wasn't wrong, about it being a boy, that is. She had the baby, and the whole kingdom erupted in celebration. A sloop was dispatched for Highcliffe to tell the king of Terra Verde about the birth of his son. It stopped off at a halfway point, and the messengers went into an inn to grab some food. Nusha, the innkeeper called, and a woman appeared by the bar. She looked at the men who sat in front of her with a smile. Oh, my, look at their clothes. It wasn't every day that they had visitors like this. They got to talking, and she eventually learned that the men were on a trip to tell the king of Terra Verde about the birth of his son. Nusha cocked an eyebrow. She thought the queen of Terra Verde died last year. The men nodded. She did. But the king married her beautiful servant. Said it was his wife's dying wish, but, you know... We're all kind of skeptical. She's cool, though, the queen. She combs her hair with her feet. She's penta with the chopped off hands, the messenger's companion remarked. Wow, ableist much? 
the messenger said with a sneer. But Nusha held up her hands. Penta. And she lost her hands. The men nodded. Mm Mm-hmm. The woman smiled. How about another drink? The messenger and his companion held up their hands to stop her, but she was already topping them off. All right, all right, but this was their last. It wasn't, and in a few hours, they were dead to the world, drooling on the bar. After she closed up, Nusha glanced around and fished through the satchel, finding the note for the king of Terra Verde. She took it, mimicked the handwriting as best she could, and slid the note back in the pack, tossing the original into the fire. A week later, the king stood with a knitted brow. Huh. So his wife had given birth to a monster, and now she, quote, crawls around on the floor like an animal eating kitchen garbage? Did the messenger care to explain what this meant? The messenger said that that wasn't quite what he remembered, but hey, if that's what the note said, that's what the note said. The king was incredulous. Uh-huh. Well, he knew how to handle this. He finished penning a note of his own, told the messenger to keep it safe, and commanded the man to leave immediately. Oh, please, Nusha said, when she read the response from the king, the messenger snoring in the background again. Care for both my wife and child. I will see them when I return. Ugh. She pulled out a piece of paper and wrote yet another note. The steward, the man the king had left in command of the kingdom, swallowed hard when he read the note from his king. Ooh, kill them both, it read. I should never have married a peasant woman who can't even care for herself. Yikes. Wow. So, so you're not going to do this, right? The noble said. The steward threw up his hands. Look, it's not like he had a choice. The king had final say on whether or not he wanted to summarily execute his wife, or kind of almost anyone, without trial or even explanation. Do you really think someone, anyone, should have that much power? The nobles asked. Oh, no, of course not, the steward replied. But he does, and that issue isn't going to be solved today, so... He slowly drew his dagger. Penta rolled her eyes and said she would leave and the steward could just tell the king that he had carried out the execution. Oh my gosh, could you? Thank you so much. I don't want to do any of that. That was going to be like the worst day ever. Then he looked at the princess and the baby he had been preparing to execute. Second worst day ever. So she left. She had survived by herself once before, but the baby's cries cut like a knife. That night, she huddled in a cold cave, while her child howled himself to sleep. You did what? The king screamed. The steward smiled. Well, he should be happy because they did exactly what he said and killed them instantly like he told them to. What? I didn't say that. The king screamed. Even though she gave birth to a monster, the steward said that the baby was a perfectly normal baby. Good news, though. He couldn't follow through with it and just sent her away. So he disobeyed and lied to the king. Will he please take power back because the steward was all sorts of stressed out. This wasn't fun anymore. But the king wouldn't. 
He had to get to the bottom of this. Someone had wanted his wife dead, and they were almost successful. The king almost immediately deduced the origin of the fake, when the messenger almost immediately confessed to getting blackout drunk twice, once on the trip to bring him the letter, and then on the trip back. The king rigged a galley and showed up at the inn, where, asking about the name Penta, a woman who, yes, didn't have hands, but that wasn't like her whole thing, that didn't define her, she was still a complete person, and the husband said that she was there about a year ago, but she mysteriously disappeared after a night. The messenger pointed to Nusha, the very generous bartender, who held it together for a second until she broke. She confessed that it was jealousy. She was jealous of Penta for her beauty, for the attention that her husband lavished on her, for that even though Nusha tried to kill her, Penta came back thriving. It wasn't fair. The king didn't get that. Penta had been through a lot, and her life was a horror story. She was up to, what, three attempted murders now? I mean, yeesh. Still, Nusha did the right thing by confessing. So the king would do the right thing now. He would make it quick. This is quick? The messenger shouted when he saw what the king had planned for Nusha. He had a bunch of wax sent down the coast, melted, and then he coated Nusha in it up to her lips, having run a wick up the length of her body. Then he lit the giant candle. He was back on his ship before the wax melted enough for the people to hear her screams. On his way home, he learned two things. One, the trail on Penta had gone cold a couple days outside the kingdom. She crossed a river, boarded a cart, or found a road, and no one within a 10-mile radius knew anything about her. She was gone. Two, the king could make some money. The message from home and his buddy from the kingdom of Dry Rock met him at the same time, and he learned that there was a contest going on in the kingdom of Torrid Lake. Whoever came to the king there with the saddest story in the world would earn a golden crown and a scepter worth more than a kingdom. The king of Terra Verde laughed. Oh, that guy knew pain? Whatever, the king of Dry Rock's pain was measured in teaspoons, while his own was measured in bushels. The king of Dry Rock grimaced, weird flex, but okay. They would see what the king of Torrid Lake thought about all this. And they would. They traveled together to the kingdom of Torrid Lake, which was ruled over by a sorcerer who barely does any magic in this story. I guess he was a sorcerer, but it wasn't like his whole thing either. He had other hobbies too. The sorcerer king sat both the kings down around a table, begging them to begin their stories. The king of Dry Rock went first. First, he said he lost his parents. Then, he lost his wife. Then, the only woman he loved rejected him, and he lost her too. The king of Torrid Lake bit his lip. Oh yeah, this is some good tragedy, keep it coming. The king of Dry Rock looked at him. Uh, sure. Well, this woman didn't love him, but she pretended like she did. Totally friend-zoned. Well, sister-zoned. The king of Terra Verde looked over. Wait. The king of Torrid Lake said friend-zoned wasn't something people really said anymore. It was kind of, wait, Actually, what was that second one? The King of Dry Rock said that the woman was his sister. Minor plot point. Who among us hasn't wanted to threaten our siblings into marriage? 
Hands from the other two kings went up. The king of Dry Rock rolled his eyes. Prudes. Well, like he said, she only pretended to like him, and so he confided in her about his hand thing. Hand thing? The sorcerer king asked, and then shook his head. Never mind, he didn't need to know. So, heartbreak of heartbreaks, she cut off her beautiful hands. So, after losing his parents and his wife, he lost his sister, but he didn't just lose her. He, he murdered her. The room was silent. The king of Dry Rock was in tears. He said he sealed his sister into a chest and cast her into the ocean. When his grief and despair subsided, he realized the depth of his depravity. But it was too late. He would never have her back. The king of Terraverde relaxed the hand on the sword. This was the man who had tried to kill Penta, but he wasn't the same man. He had changed. The king of Torrid Lake turned to the king of Terraverde and asked him to tell his story. And he did. He told of the woman he had found in the chest, of the medieval man in the middle attack, and of the banishment, how he had searched for weeks, but hadn't found Penta. Then a door opened. It was Penta and the baby. The sorcerer said that when he found this woman surviving by herself in the wilderness with a child, he asked her story, and she told it. It was the story of two men, one a brother with a hand thing, still didn't need to know, and the other a husband who would condemn her to death by letter. Still, the sorcerer king had to see how true the story was. He never expected one to confess and repent of his evil deeds and the other to have been falsely accused. Turns out he didn't need those creative and horrifying magical execution techniques after all. What? The king of Terverde asked. What? Don't worry about it, the sorcerer king replied. Now, though, they had something for the newly happy couple. Since he wasn't into kidnapping women Koshe the Deathless style, he was single, and, as such, never had an heir. He wanted to formally adopt both the king of Terraverde and Penta so that they might inherit his kingdom when he died. Oh, come on, he gets to marry his sister? The king of Dry Rock asked. And then he thought about it. You know what? That's not the point. Pass this, pass this. And what for me? He asked, smiling expectantly. You get to leave with your life? The sorcerer king said with a confused look. I know you're sorry, but you tried to force your sister into marriage and then murder her when she refused. I'm not giving you presents for that. You get to live. Take the win, bud. The king of Dry Rock nodded, bowing low. Duly noted, he was leaving right now. Bye, everyone. Then the sorcerer turned to Penta. One last thing. He told her to reach into her apron. When she did, he asked her to pull her arms out. Penta pulled them out, and her hands had regrown in an instant. The story says that everyone in attendance was gurgling with delight, because who doesn't gurgle when they're happy? The king of Terraverde put his younger brother in charge of the kingdom, which was serendipitous, because the younger brother had planned on assassinating the older king and taking the power away anyway. The story doesn't say that, but, you know, it was probably the case. Penta and the king stayed on with their new dad, the sorcerer king, and the story ends saying that you cannot find sweetness, dear, if you have not first known bitterness.
do like how everyone ended up friends in the end, and that the pain of Penta's past truly was healed and resolved. Well, I mean, almost everyone ended up as friends. The female, non-royal antagonist, Nusha, while confessing and expressing the same amount of insight and regret, didn't get pulled into the group hug ending, but rather was turned into a human candle and slowly burned. Probably nothing to read into there. What I like about this story is that, while it follows some of the same beats as the other chopped-off hands and arms stories, stories where a female protagonist has her hands or arms chopped off by a family member, sidebar, there are way too many of these exact types of stories all around the world, but this one, while it follows a similar structure, there are some noteworthy differences. The first is that Penta cuts her own hands off. Dark, yes, but in pretty much every version of the story, the young woman is surprised and attacked, and she's the victim. Here, Penta makes a choice to kind of literally cut herself free from a harmful situation. By the way, this is a fairy tale and more of a metaphor, and self-harm is never, ever the answer. I also like how it handled the hands regrowing thing. There is no version of this story in which the protagonist's hands or arms don't regrow. It represents the protagonist dealing with and growing past the trauma of her youth. But in this one, it's sort of an afterthought at the end. She's a perfectly capable person without her hands who survives, the story says, years in the forest, as she is. She doesn't need her hands again, unlike most versions where the child is in mortal danger, usually drowning in the forest, and the Penta character needs her hands to rescue the baby. Here, she did just fine without them, and the restoration was mostly symbolic. Next week, we're back in the story of Odysseus, and others returning from the Trojan War, where we'll make a bit of a time jump and see how Odysseus's 17-year-old son is planning to get all those drunk guys out of his house. If you'd like to support the show, we have a membership thing on the site. For less than the price of the Red Wall Cookbook, you can get extra episodes and ad-free versions of the show that will in no way be as amazing as the Red Wall Cookbook. All priorities should go to the Red Wall Cookbook. And if you have any money left over, then please consider buying the membership and listening to the ad-free and bonus episodes while you make the glorious vegetarian dishes that undoubtedly made your mouth water when you were a child. For more info on the membership, check out support.mythpodcast.com. The creatures this week are the Agathodemon and the Cacodemon from Greek mythology. The Agathodemon and the Cacodemon are your best friend and your worst enemy, and they are always with you. Think of them like that little angel and little devil that are always on your shoulder, like in those old cartoons, except the good one wants you to relax with a cup of strong wine, and the bad one just wants to mess up your life forever. The Cacodemon is just like a big burly wild man who follows you around at all times acting as either a messenger from the gods or filling you with all sorts of bad impulses. I guess it's also like an angry, pointy, red floating head from the game Doom, but I've never played that, so I'm going to go with the wild man. The good guy is either a youth holding a basket full of ears of corn or a snake with a kind-looking human head. So right now, right behind you, you have like evil Jason Momoa trying to get you to eat that extra donut and an inverse Medusa trying to help you live your best life. When it comes to helping out the good one, the creepy little bookworm only asks for one thing, that you try to live a virtuous life and improve yourself. Just try, that's all it asks. Oh, and wine. According to the ancient world, 
they would like a little bit of wine after dinner, that taking the form of libations, or you just having wine after dinner. They're almost never aggressive, unless someone is attacking a vineyard that they've pledged to protect. They really like their wine. As for the bad one, well, don't listen to feral Hugh Jackman trying to get you to make bad choices. Of course, in the picture of this creature I posted on the website, it shows the caco demon literally throttling a guy. So maybe the ancients weren't that optimistic regarding our impulse control. That's it for this week. Myths and Legends is by Jason and Chris Weiser. Our theme song is by the band Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. There are links to more music in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.